in order for us to really be alive, we have to live in accordance with reality. And this, is most, this, this principle is most obvious in the physical realm. So they're putting up, there's obviously some scaffolding out on the building here at Ruggles Baptist. And if I were suddenly kind of deluded and thought that I could fly and decided to take you all outside and climb the scaffolding and show you my new talent, um, I wouldn't last very long, right? There's physical limitations to what I can do as a human being, and I can't jump off a third story scaffolding and land safely. Um, I can't do that. There are all kinds of of built-in limitations in the physical universe that we know that if we step outside of them, we're going to face some kind of consequences and and diminished form of life or maybe death itself. The reality is is that there there are moral and spiritual realities as well that are harder for us to discern but are still inherent in this universe such that if we step outside of them, if we move outside of them, that we find life is all of a sudden diminished and reduced. So in order for us to truly be alive as human beings, we need to live within the bounds of reality, both physical and moral and spiritual and every other kind of reality that has been set up in this world by our creator God. If we jump outside, we're missing out on life. And so chapter 4 of the book of Daniel gives us one such, uh, one example of one who is literally out of bounds And gives us this kind of graphic picture of what it's like to live life outside of these boundaries. And that's King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has been the subject of uh, of many of these early stories. Or he's been a character, a lead character in these stories. The king of Babylon, the known empire of the day in the 6th century. And here Nebuchadnezzar illustrates for us in chapter 4 a sickness. Uh, A sickness, a faulty vision of human life. And therefore of the fruit that that faulty vision produces. And I want to go right to to verse 30. If you have uh, your Bible, Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, where we see this faulty vision of life most easily expressed, most uh, clearly expressed. He says in in verse 30 of chapter 5, as he's walking around on the top of his palace, looking out over ancient Babylon, which was one of the most spectacular cities in the ancient world, The Hanging Gardens of Babylon are one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And it was a a massive city, beautiful city, with a gate all the way around it that you could fit a a carriage with its horses on both sides and they could cross each other on top of this 27-kilometer gate around the city. And so he's looking out on the city and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? When he spoke these words, then the angel, the voice from heaven fell upon him and and things changed pretty quickly. We'll get to that perhaps in a moment. Essentially what Nebuchadnezzar's view is, is that I'm at the center. I'm the man, so to speak. You know, he kind of looks out over all that he's built and, and feels really puffed up with what he's done. I've earned what I have. I've built this by the might and the strength of my own hands. Certainly the laborers who put those walls and towers together would have wanted to quibble a little bit with his statement here. But everything came back to him. I've done this. He's at the center. He's ignoring any power above him, i.e. God, and is built up deeply by the accomplishments of his own life. 
And this just isn't in line with reality, is it? You know, it doesn't matter if you have a map of Boston that's actually, you know, a map of, of uh, Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina, but it's got, you know, that scribbled out and it says Boston, and you take it out and you start to try to follow it around the city, you're going to find that no matter how sincerely and how hard you follow the details of that map, that you're never going to end up at the Boston Common, even though you're trying. You've got the wrong guide. And so this, this interior state of Nebuchadnezzar's heart that we get a glimpse of here in verse 30 is that faulty map, that faulty view and vision of reality, which is him at the center taking credit for all of, all of his accomplishments, building his sense of identity out of those accomplishments and boasting in those things in his life. It's building a life essentially on himself. And what are the fruit of this then in Nebuchadnezzar's life? One thing that we see is an uneasiness in him. We'd seen this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And this dream had this big statue and the statue was destroyed by this stone that was cut out of the side of the mountain by no human hand, the text says. In a similar way, in chapter 4, we get another dream of Nebuchadnezzar's where, again, it's a dream about a tree that's grown up to, to, to be flourishing and then the tree is cut down. And it indicates a kind of internal state of insecurity in him. A kind of uncertainty about really, have I gotten far enough? Have I made it high enough? Or is this all just going to come crumbling down? So there's an inherent kind of instability and insecurity in the midst of his worldly success that is somewhat counterintuitive. We tend to think, well, if if you'd made it like Nebuchadnezzar, surely you'd be kind of comfortable and secure. But verse 5 says, he says, I was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. You know, here I was at the top of everything. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. And I, as I lay in bed, the fancies and the, vision, and the visions of my head alarmed me. There's this kind of inherent insecurity in a life that's built on itself. That Nebuchadnezzar can't escape. And it breeds a kind of ongoing drive in him. To be greater, to be better, to, to, to glory in his achievements. It, it kind of pushes and further a drive further. Because there's a sense, perhaps, of even at the top of a kind of inferiority in the depth of his heart. I've got to push further and harder. So that's one of the fruits that this this path um, leads to, this faulty vision. A second one is in verse 27. Verse 27. This is where uh, Daniel finishes interpreting the dream for him and then says these words of warning to Nebuchadnezzar. He says um, in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, this life that is only accountable to itself, to himself, that he's building his own kingdom around himself leads to him, for him to become a law unto himself. Because Daniel's saying, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. The implication there is Nebuchadnezzar is just kind of doing whatever he sees fit. Doing whatever he wants. And then the second thing Daniel says is show mercy and your iniquities. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. By showing mercy to the oppressed. As Nebuchadnezzar gains prominence and success as the king of Babylon. He kind of becomes in his own sphere. And begins to look and to think to himself, as we saw in verse 30. Look, I've, des- I've earned these things. I've done these things. These things are great. And he all of a sudden kind of elevates one above everyone else in his kingdom. 
And suddenly the people that are being oppressed or the people that are poor or the people that haven't had the success that he has are no longer on the same playing field as he is. And they've become second class. And it's much easier for him to begin to kind of write them off. And so uh, Daniel says, look, you need to break that off and you need to show mercy to those who are oppressed. It's interesting, there was a building inscription in Babylon that's been excavated that said that Nebuchadnezzar claimed to be a just, meek, and humble king. It would be the case that it seems as though Daniel's words to Nebuchadnezzar here are uh, indicating that that inscription was just kind of royal, pompous, you know, airy stuff. That actually he was a cut above. He did see himself as superior. And so he began to oppress and to not care about those who were underneath him. I wonder, I'm not sitting here going, you guys are all Nebuchadnezzar, just to be clear. (laughs) But I wonder how many of us have a bit of Nebuchadnezzar-ishness in us in some way. And so if there's things that we can learn from the glimpse into his life that we see here, at some level, that when we begin to have some kind of success, and maybe some of us are enjoying that at the moment, that there's a kind of elevation that takes place. We start to feel a little bit smug and superior to others. And quickly before you know it, we just kind of don't care about people who don't have what we have or people who don't run in the circles that we run in or who aren't as important as we think that we are and so on and so forth. And we begin to show this kind of fruit that not only is there a psychological element to it of insecurity, but there's the sociological element of it that leads to a kind of marginalization of others and putting others down. Or perhaps it's not that we're in that state of of relative success in our lives, but maybe it's just that there's a sense of deep failure in our own lives. Maybe some of us are here tonight still with that kind of orientation that Nebuchadnezzar shows where it's about me and what I accomplish and what I get done. But instead of feeling like we're on top, we actually just feel like we're stuck on bottom. Most of you know that I don't do Facebook. um, And I'm probably proud of that and you need to rebuke me for that. Um, Especially what I'm about to say. (laughs) But uh, people who do, people have told me, lots of people have told me that when they go on Facebook, they just start to feel worse about themselves. Now, I'm sure none of you can identify with that. Um, apparently, it's, there's a term called face bragging. I didn't really know this. But, um, you know, where you, you're starting to just kind of put something up and up and up. And you look on this thing, and all of a sudden, you just feel kind of crummy. Because, you know, this person's prettier, or this person's done more, or this person's more academically credentialed, this person got that article published. And it's just like this, ah, big kind of pity party that happens. I, I would suggest to you that that dynamic at play means that though we don't have Nebuchadnezzar's position, we still have some of that Nebuchadnezzar sickness in us. But it's one that suggests that more, I haven't made it where I want to make it. And that can then produce the fruit of of striving even harder to get there. And when we get into that place of striving even harder to get there, suddenly other people can become expendable. It's not that we have an ill will perhaps toward them, but what's most important is that I get there, that I catch up with the Joneses, so to speak, and others just begin to kind of fit into that plan and that structure. Or perhaps, on the other hand, if, we don't, if we've lost that sense of motivation, then sometimes this kind of, this, this disease in Nebuchadnezzar of life unto myself, which is built only on what I've done, can actually lead to a deep sense of despair. Not a, well, I haven't made it, so I'm going to strive harder, but I haven't made it, and I just, I'm terrible, and I'm never going to make it. And I just wrestle with that. And so I, I just go into a deeper kind of spiral and downward spin. I'm not going to make it. 
It's the, it's the heart of Nebuchadnezzar walking around on the palace roof, glorying in all that he's done, that is rooted behind both manifestations of the success or of the failure, where life is ultimately just built on me, where I'm at the center, and where what I accomplish is ultimately what gives me a sense of puffed-upness or of deflatedness. That is the faulty vision, the faulty way, that isn't consistent with what is truly real. Natural as this road may be for us, whether we feel that we're on top tonight or that we're on bottom, it only leads to a kind of psychological and sociological trouble and to a diminishment of who we are as human beings made in the image of a good and holy creator and loving creator, God. It's interesting, a couple interesting things here. Psalm 49, Psalm 49 verse 20, the last verse of that psalm, it says this, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The underlying implicit theology of Psalm 49 is that the more that we start to root our lives in our accomplishments and in who we are outside of anyone else, the more beast-like we become, the less human we become, the more diminished we become, because we're living outside of reality. We've stepped outside of reality. Interestingly then, here in Daniel chapter 4, what is it that Nebuchadnezzar turns into? Well, he remains human, but where does he go? Most scholars think that the sickness that he's inflicted with in Daniel chapter 4 is some kind of insanity. He loses his reason. And so he leaves his palace and his, his, his high place, and he goes out among the fields, and the dew falls on him, and he eats the grass, and his nails grow, as anybody's nails would grow if they had left civilization for a long period of time, and his hair grows, and he takes his place among the beasts. There's this underlying thread, this message throughout Scripture that the more that we reject the reality of God, the more that we grow into a beast-likeness. Our humanity is diminished. Whether, again, we're on top or we're on bottom, the more we move away, the more beast-like that we become, the less human that we become. And that's where this kind of sickness leads. And the picture of Daniel 4 gives us that in a rather graphic way in Daniel's own life. This is all contrasted then This way of Nebuchadnezzar is contrasted in verse 17 with true reality. This is an account in the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is telling Daniel of his dream. And he's telling of the the heavenly messenger that came down and talked about the tree being chopped down to its stump. And this is what the messenger, the, the decree of the watchman says this. Verse 17. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end. The decision is to cut down this tree to the end or for the purpose that the living ones might know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, this is going to come about in order that you, Nebuchadnezzar, might know that there is a God above you. There is a God over you. There is a God who rules over all the earth and who therefore then gives to those under his rule the positions, the privileges, the gifts that they enjoy and sets over nations even the lowliest of men. What's given to us in verse 17 is actually a picture of God in the center of the world, not me. And of all that I have, all that Nebuchadnezzar has as the king of the world's greatest empire of the day, as a gift from God. 
as something that's been entrusted to you from the Lord. A gift, a grace given. So this world is not about what I've, get, what I've done exclusive by myself, but this world is about what God has given, what I have now under his rule and under his reign. And this then begins to deal with the sickness, the kind of heart that we see in Nebuchadnezzar and the fruit that's born out from that. Because all of a sudden, instead of this kind of insecurity and this uncertainty always looking over my shoulder and this deeper drive, we can relax. We can rest. This is a gift given. Your position in life, the things that you enjoy in life, those things are gifts that have been given to you. You can rest in them. Not feeling like you've got to run around and patch every hole and fix every crack rest in them because they're a gift that's been given to you and it deals with that not just that inferiority complex but the superiority complex as well because all of a sudden we realize that what we have is nothing more than a gift that God the most high God has given to us and we're now free to enjoy that gift without a sense of overinflatedness on ourselves in ourselves and then to look out upon others who may have different giftings different places in society and in life some perhaps more elevated in terms of our culture's values, some's less elevated, but all therefore then on this equal playing field. And suddenly in the world of grace, in the world of gift, we're free then not to start oppressing those on the margins or those that have little, but to start noticing and to serving and to pouring out our lives for them. It deals this this central picture of God over all things, giving a gift to his people, deals with those of us who struggle deeply with a sense of failure and a sense of being nobody in our lives, a sense of never going to make, I'm never going to achieve what I need to achieve to be me, to be validated, to be justified. Because it says, no, no, God is over you. God has given to you gifts. God has bestowed upon you precisely what he wants you to have. So that when you open up Facebook and see all the gifts of others, you can celebrate those things that they've been given and remember that God has given you these very kinds of gifts yourself as well. And yes, we may sometimes want to quibble with God. Well, why didn't you give me this instead of that or this instead of that? But this picture of being under the Most High who's given gifts to us. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was the gift of his kingdom sets us free from being defined by what we think we need to do. And it puts God in the center, God on center stage. So at the beginning and the end, actually chapter 4 is given to us as a testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's praising God for what he's done for him in verses 1 through 3. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And then at the end, in, chapter, in, in verse 34, he says, At the end of the days, um, my reason returned, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And all of a sudden, what's now in the center of Nebuchadnezzar's life, having been shown this in a deep way, is God. And he's praising this God of Israel and lifting him up through worship and praise. So I'm no longer at the center, but God is and this then is the road that leads to life this is the road that leads to true flourishing when nebuchadnezzar finally gets this message through a really dramatic event when he finally lifts his eyes up to heaven it says that his reason returns to him and that his kingdom is restored to him and he becomes in a sense what he was always meant to be as the king over babylon as god's under understudy entrusted with this he becomes fully human 
Now, in the midst of this, and when I close with this thread here, this last thread, is the amazing pursuit of God. We can't miss this in chapter 4. The grace of God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar. It's as if living in the world of Nebuchadnezzar, where life is about me and what I've accomplished and what I've done outside of God, it's as if we're sitting on the edge of a, of a volcano, probably like some of you were sitting by a campfire last night with our Hershey's chocolate and our marshmallows and our graham crackers, and we're like, yeah, this is a great campfire. We're here to have some s'mores. It's going to be awesome. Little do we know the volcano is about to explode. And God in his grace comes and gives warning and calls, his, calls people, even people as proud and as wicked as King Nebuchadnezzar. And warns them graciously to give up their faulty map and to take up the real one, the true one, to come and have full life in him. And he does this through the prophets. Throughout Daniel 1 through 4, the subtext of Daniel 1 through 4 is this is a duel and a battle between Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand and God on the other. And God continues to show, despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and defeated the Jews and and ransacked the temple and brought all this stuff back to Babylon, thinking he had defeated Israel's God. What happens? The guys eat vegetables and they get bigger and stronger and fatter than everybody else. And they get wiser. And then in chapter 2, his own magicians can't figure it out. And so Daniel comes and tells him what the dream is. And then in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar isn't even strong enough to protect his own guards from the fiery furnace. But God protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames of the fire. You would think that Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get the message, but he's incredibly slow to learn. So again in chapter 4, he has a dream, needs an interpretation, and calls upon Daniel, the one in whom the spirit of the gods rests, he says. Suddenly God is starting to show Nebuchadnezzar more and more and more. You are not the ultimate end and king and God and Lord. But I am and I'm ruling and I'm reigning. And I'm trying to show you that again and again and again. And so he sends Daniel to give him, this, to give him the interpretation of the dream. The prophets come. The word of God is given. And, Daniel, or, and Nebuchadnezzar even in verse 27 has a chance to repent. That's when he says break off your sins and do righteousness. Break off your iniquities and do justice. If this isn't a picture of a gracious and merciful king, what is? And then when Nebuchadnezzar doesn't figure it out, and a year later he's walking on the palace and he starts to get all proud, and at that moment he's struck down, it's only for seven periods of time. In order that then Nebuchadnezzar might come to see that God is the Most High and does rule over all the kingdoms of men. In other words, God comes and he gives his prophets, he gives Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar as examples of a life that's lived in a different way according to the true map that's flourishing and human and not beastly and subhuman. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar a conscience and dreams and he starts to show him these things. And then he also gives him this trouble and this affliction, this insanity. You know, one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's favorite verses was Psalm 119, verse 71, from one of his favorite psalms, which says... It says this, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now there's a lot that can be said here, and I don't want you to miss here what I'm saying, but I am saying that chapter 4 of Daniel teaches us that God can at times, this is not to say that every affliction you've ever experienced, this is God's purpose in it, but it is to say that at times God can send affliction into our lives as a means of grace to bring us low and humble to turn to him. 
I was having a conversation with a man a couple of weeks ago in his mid-40s who had just had a couple of health scares, and he was telling me over the table, you know, I'm always one question away from a conversation about Christianity in the church because it's like, well, what do you do? Well, I pastor a church. Okay, so we're into that conversation. And he told me that he and his wife and their child were starting to look for a church. They were starting to look for a place of worship. And I said, well, really, what, why is that? What's, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, our child's growing older, but also I've had a couple of health scares over the past year of my life. And so we've, it's provoked in us this curiosity. This affliction has provoked in us this curiosity to start to look, to learn, to see if there's another way, a different map for us to live by. So God is gracious and merciful to pursue, to warn, to admonish, to bring us out of the faulty map that leads to insecurity and superiority and neglect and, that, and into a way of human life where he's at the center And do you know how he does this most of all? It's interesting in verse 34 when Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses. It says, then he says, and I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. Do you know how God does this most of all? It's not that he requires us to look up to heaven because we have been so low and humble. But it's that he sends heaven down to earth. And humbles himself in the person of his son in a greater degree than Nebuchadnezzar was humbled from the king of Babylon to an insane man in the fields like a beast. But this holy and righteous and true and powerful king lays down his life, humbles himself, and comes among us in order that we might see Not just that God is there and that God is powerful and that God rules over all, but that his power and his rule is marked by a self-giving love that is entirely the opposite of the kind of life that Nebuchadnezzar and that the world around us so often tells us that we're called to lead. That God sends his son to show us a different way, to show us his love and his life for us, and to show us that life, true life, is found not in accumulating and succeeding and pushing others to the side so I can get to where I want to be, but in laying down and letting go and abdicating the role and the power that God has given me so that it might be used for the blessing and the benefit of others. This is the way that God, most of all above his prophets, above his word, above our consciences, even above our afflictions, sends the message to us to lay down our lives and to embrace his life. To lay down a view of reality where I'm at the center and to embrace him at my center, the humble king who's given me life. Now I can then live this life too because he has done it for me by trusting, by walking faithfully in him. This is the way to truly flourish. God is so gracious to Nebuchadnezzar, to you and to me, to show us this way, to lead us to life. Amen.